Welcome to our podcast, Microbes in Us, brought to you by the Federation of European Microbiological Societies. I am Joseph. And I am Eleni. And, and we, we are, are the hosts of Microbes in Us. This podcast brings together the people that work tirelessly to uncover and understand the microbial world, its secrets, its complexity, and its vibrancy. And it will show us how microbes can shape, break, and make our human world. From prehistoric times, all the way to the modern world around us. We hope you enjoy and share this podcast. Hello, everybody. Welcome to episode 15 of Microbes and Us. I am Eleni Corsari, and today with me, I have a very special guest all the way from Sydney, Australia. I'm going to be talking with Jennifer Matthews, who recently won the FEMS Microbes Best Presentation Prize at a meeting called JAMS 11. We're going to talk about coral reef conservation and climate change, and also how it is to do fieldwork, among other topics. So stay tuned, it's definitely going to be a very interesting discussion. Welcome Jennifer to our podcast. I'm really happy we found some time to chat, especially with the tricky time difference between Netherlands and Sydney. So welcome again. Thank you so much for having me. It's an absolute pleasure to be here. Yeah, absolutely. With the, It's always this way with um, tuning into Europe. So let's start with my first question uh, to get to know you a little bit better. Can you introduce yourself and your research? Yes, absolutely. So I'm Dr. Jen Matthews. I'm a marine biologist and coral reef conservationist. I'm a postdoctoral researcher at the University of Technology, Sydney in Australia in the Future Reefs group here. And I'm on a mission to find new ways to help protect our precious coral reefs. And so just like us, corals need nutrients to thrive and survive. But how much and which nutrients that help them to grow and fight infections and adapt to change, that's still relatively unknown. So I apply tools and techniques from biology and chemistry and forensics to investigate these kind of nutritional interactions. And then I use this knowledge to develop new ways to improve reef resilience and restore degraded reefs. So my background has been very much uh, a very diverse one. I've worked in ecotourism, government and policy development, uh, marine conservation and, and resource management, and then obviously academic research. So yeah, it's been a, a very mixed journey, but a very enjoyable one. To tie everything back to microbiology, are any microbial interactions happening in a coral reef? Imagine like, yeah, Corys are busy cities as they were, and they're full of interactions from apex predators like sharks and turtles and fish and seahorses, and then even smaller colorful worms and other tiny creatures, and then all the way to the single cell plants. There's over 4,000 species actually living on reefs, and they depend on reefs for at least one part of their life cycle. And some of the most interesting interactions are actually relationships between one or more organisms, which you may know as a symbiosis. What do you think a coral is? Do you think it's a plant, an animal or a rock? It's a trick question because it's actually all three. So, and even more. So the coral animal is similar to a jellyfish um, and they have transparent tissues with stinging cells that they can use to capture food. But they also have these tiny symbiotic algae that live in their tissues called symbiodiniaceae, which is a 
a pretty hard word to keep saying, so I'm just going to call them symbionts. But they give them corals the beautiful colours, um, but also through photosynthesis, provide them with the majority of nutrients that they need to construct coral reefs. And so corals, the architects of reefs, are themselves a multitude of interactions. There's um, microbes as well that are really important members. And so corals are not just an animal, they're not just an animal and a plant and a rock, they're microbes as well and what we call the holobion. But also, I should say that we are intimately connected to reefs. We rely on them for things like coastal protection, um, a source of protein for hundreds of countries and um, a source of income as well. They have massive economic and cultural value, for example, in Australia, to the traditional owners along the Great Barrier Reef. But they are also a source of novel medicine. So treatments for cancer and Alzheimer's have all come from reefs. And all of these rely on healthy, functional reefs. If you start to see a degraded reef or reefs that are losing their corals or losing their interactions in diverse communities, then with that goes all of those resources as well. There's actually two questions I want to ask you now. So first of all, you briefly touched on the interplay between humans and coral reefs. So does human activity affect coral reefs and, uh, and how? 100% directly. Some fishing practices like dynamite fishing or trawl net fishing, they don't just take the fish, they destroy the house that the fish lives in, so the coral. That would be like trawl net fishing, for example, is like imagine a farm full of cows and chickens. Well, it's not just taking one cow or one chicken. It's taking the cows, the chicken, the farmer, the farmer's dog, the farmer's house and all the grass. That's trawl net fishing. And it's still going on, unfortunately, in order to meet the demand for food. So yeah, there's a lot of direct interactions that are causing the loss of coral reefs, but also there's indirect interactions such as climate change. And there are a number of issues from climate change that are affecting corals. So the oceans are becoming more acidic. And as I said, they're part rock. So they actually have a bone, just like just like you and I, they have a bone. If you drop one of your teeth into vinegar or something acidic it will degrade over time it's exactly the same for corals and when the water becomes more acidic it's harder for them to deposit a skeleton as well so not only are they getting more brittle but they are also it's harder for them to grow but then the oceans are rising as well and because they rely on sunlight for those algal cells to to get photosynthesis and if the oceans are rising too quickly they can't grow with the depth of the ocean rise and so they can't keep up and, and they essentially don't get the nutrients that they need. But the biggest challenge facing corals is, is most definitely increased sea surface temperatures. And these warm waters are occurring more frequently and for longer. And what happens when the water gets warmer is that symbiosis between that coral and the algae, it breaks down because photosynthesis is inhibited. And if the algae is living in the tissues and it's just taking nutrients and stuff from the coral and not giving anything back, then that's a broken symbiosis. And so that symbiosis breaks down and the coral ejects or, or the symbiogeneaceae cells the algal cells um, leave the coral tissues. And so you see straight through colourless coral tissues to the white colour underneath, which gives them a bleached appearance. And this is called coral bleaching. So you may have heard of, of coral bleaching. But without the symbiodinium, without the symbiodinium, it's not dead. It's just very malnourished. And just like you and I, we can't last for long without food and neither can a coral. Um, but it does give them an opportunity to, if the water's cooled down quick enough, then they can get the, an, even a new species of algae, maybe one that's more resilient out of the water. But if they, if they don't get that algae back 
quick enough, then they, they will succumb to either just starvation or kind of diseases. Um, they're a little bit more sensitive to those kind of changes. So corals are literally in hot water. <laughs> and um, without positive changes in climate policy, coral reefs may not survive the century. So yeah, this is definitely a, a call for action on climate change and ocean pollution. I assume that the coral reefs are um, in a way quite old, right? Uh, evolving over millions of years? Yeah, corals are prehistoric. Um, and then modern corals, as we know them today, with the symbiotic interactions, they're still really, really old. While they're a lot younger than the very first corals we know existed, then, but they are really old. And some single colonies can be hundreds of years old. We can drill into corals just like we can see the rings on a tree. If we drill into a coral, we can see in its skeleton how old it is. Same like carbon dating, basically. And so these corals are really, really old and so not very able to quickly evolve to a change in their climate. But what might be a bit better at evolving quickly is this is the single cell algae. And so a lot of research has been into the diversity of that algae, of the Symbidoniaceae. And there's hundreds of different species of Symbidoniaceae. And so with that huge genetic diversity, there's a huge functional diversity as well. So a lot of the research is kind of focused in on this coral Symbidoniaceae interactions and maybe ways that that Symbidoniaceae could help improve resilience um, if it's able to adapt to these changing climates. But something that's been largely overlooked and, and is what I presented recently was on how the bacteria interact with the Symbidoniaceae as well, because bacteria are really important for phytoplankton nutrition growth. But that interaction with, with Symbidoniaceae, both within the corals, but also in the free living state, has been almost entirely overlooked. But in some of the research that I, I presented at JAMS that you mentioned, it's, we found that there is mutualistic interactions between um, Symbidoniaceae and bacteria and that they influence their growth and ability to survive in stressful environments. So there's some really promising in, uh, kind of knowledge that we can get from those interactions that are lesser studied, for sure. You mentioned at the start of the episode that coral reefs are huge givers. So just to summarize, why is it important to maintain healthy coral reefs? Yes, so, so we rely on them for a number of different resources. And while, while we might not live directly on a coral reef, they provide protein and at least one, like 25% of marine life has at least one life stage on a coral reef or depends on food that's produced on a coral reef. So if you like to eat anything from the ocean, then you need healthy system, ecosystems, um, including coral reef. Also, a lot of people visit beaches and they visit coral reef areas for uh, their holidays. So we do rely on them not just as a, a source of protein and medicines, but also for recreation. I think there is an improvement in terms of ecotourism and sustainable um, tourism practices around coral reefs. But you still see, for example, people feeding the fish off the back of boats, which isn't sustainable. The reason why is because then the fish eat that instead of what they're supposed to eat, which is the macroalgae on reefs, which can smother corals. So if you're feeding the fish, it's, it's not good for the fish. Although it looks pretty to you, it's, it's upsetting the balance and the delicate ecosystem that is a coral reef. So yeah, we do rely on them for a number of things. And their natural beauty is definitely one of them. Um, that's certainly what um, made me obsessed with them. <laughs> I went on a um, diving holiday in Thailand. I was meant to be there for two weeks and ended up staying four years because I love them so much. So there you go. Um, and definitely dragged me in. 
You touched a little bit there on human knowledge. So how knowledgeable is the public to the problems that coral reefs uh, have? And uh, the second part to this question is, what are a few things that people can do to help reefs survive? So I think there is improved awareness, and that comes from actions of local stakeholders like tourism operators, but also outreach opportunities like this, um, and researchers communicating with the public. And signs on beaches, um, those kind of things I, I see a lot more of these days, which is really nice. There's certainly more that we can do. There's always going to be more that we can do. And without action on climate change, all our efforts to protect and restore reefs is really just buying time for reefs. Um, so definitely using our votes wisely and, and choosing ecotourism eco or sustainable choices, making sustainable seafood choices and selecting eco-conscious businesses. But actually, this is one really, really important thing that people can do is when they visit a coral reef well, first of all you should go and visit a coral reef that's a really great thing that you could do but when you do visit them so sun cream's full of chemicals and um, there is a number of studies now showing that sun cream actually really harms corals and so putting sun cream on an hour before you get in the water not only just protects your skin better but it also means it's not going to wash off straight onto the coral reef so yeah that's one thing that people can do on your average holiday to help protect reefs Changing now the topic to fieldwork, I know you mentioned that they do quite a lot of fieldwork. What does it look like to you? What does it involve? I think whenever I tell my family I'm a marine biologist from going in the field, I think they think I'm just playing with dolphins. <laughs> so unfortunately, it's not like that. But for example, so a lot of the field work I do has been very diverse. It does involve visiting reefs. It does involve a lot of diving, um, but a lot of lab work as well. So, for example, in two weeks, I'm off to investigate ways to improve survival during coral spawning. So coral colony, they can produce millions of baby corals, but actually only 1% ever survives. And this represents a really critical kind of bottleneck for the recovery of degraded reefs and drastically limits the effectiveness of restoration projects that use coral early life stages. What I'm investigating is how fats can improve their survival because fats are pretty much the powerhouses for coral larvae. They are 70% fat and it fuels their dispersal and growth to adult corals. And until now, coral larvae were thought to, to not feed and so they were born with all the fats that they could possibly have. But in some novel research from our group has shown that they can feed and actually providing them with nice, juicy, fatty foods can improve their survival by 46%, which is pretty amazing. But we don't know exactly Exactly what it was in the food that we tested that helped them so much so now we're going to go in two weeks to do a more targeted experiment feeding experiment and discover the best baby food for corals so yeah it's pretty amazing the coral spawning um being out there because they all release their eggs within 15 minutes of each other so um they'll be silent they'll be so quiet nothing will be happening and then all of a sudden there'll just be millions of eggs released into the water and that's pretty fantastic to see it's like snowing upside down it's really amazing so yeah, that's, that's what I'm doing this year. Now, can you tell us a little bit about the big blue conservation? Yeah, so this was my holiday to Thailand that got quite extended. <laughs> um, so I had just finished my undergraduate in biology and I went to Thailand just for a holiday, just to get away. And um, I went diving and I went underwater and the colours were just 
so beautiful. They were these bright whites, these fluorescent yellows, these iridescent blues. They were just so vibrant. And I came up from the dive and I said to my diving instructor, like, this is amazing. The corals are so beautiful. And he said, actually, they're really stressed. And this is my first introduction to coral bleaching. They were all bleached and those colors were stressed colors. Um, I was thought, oh my gosh, something this beautiful when it's this stressed. What does it look like when it's healthy? Um, and that kind of started my passion for coral reefs. And so um, I stayed here a little longer, did a little bit more diving, did a lot more diving. And then in 2010, I, myself and the uh, owner manager of Big Blue Diving uh, called Jim Donaldson, we got together and we thought, well, there must be more that we can do because we were seeing before our eyes reefs disappearing. We also wanted to protect not just the livelihood of the tourism industry that he it works in but also local stakeholders like fishermen and and the other Thai communities on on the island that I was on in Kotao. So we started one of the first dedicated conservation arms of a, of a diving school in Thailand and as part of our mission was to improve activities at the resort itself to make it more sustainable and um, but also improve diver education things like not feeding the fish or not throwing your cigarette end on the floor or not touching the fish and not grabbing the corals, simple things like that, but also communication with the locals, finding out what they want as well, and restoration activities like coral nurseries. And we also were part of a marine zonation plan with the government. So they helped us, uh, we helped them, sorry, uh, develop a marine zonation plan so that we could all live in harmony and get what we needed from the reef, but also protect its future and future for generations. I have also seen that you are quite active in inspiring young generations, particularly women in science. Are any messages that you would like to share with the audience? I really strongly believe that you have to find something you're passionate about, and it doesn't matter what it is. If you find something that really you wake up in the morning and you think, I just want to do more of that, or I want to find out more about that, I think that's the most important thing. Because a, a life in academia and in research, it's hard, it's challenging, and it's not always secure. And so in order to deal with those kind of um, stresses, the only thing that ha drives me really is, is my passion for coral reefs and all the resources that they provide and support. I would say for fellow female researchers in STEM topics, find a community of like-minded peers and supportive supervisors that will help you navigate it. Because I, um, for example, I just had a baby a year and a half ago, and that was really challenging, more challenging than I thought it would be to come back into work and find that work-life balance. But it was only with the support of my supervisor and, and peers, other ECRs and students even, and the supportive family as well, that made it work. I think it's recognizing that it's really hard in academia, but also you get a lot out of it, but only if you're passionate about it. Speaking of academic journey, uh, I was thinking if you could share with us a little bit more about your experiences between different countries and different continents. Did you feel that there are any um, differences between the countries? And uh, yeah. Yeah, so I did my undergraduate at Bath University in the UK and my master's at Imperial College London. And they were, it was very different there versus Sydney, not in bad ways, just very different. The, the communities kind of in Australia, 
I guess you're living by the beach you're well not in everywhere in Australia but we are in Sydney living by the beach and you don't really live by the beach in the middle of England (laughs) yeah so I've worked in uh, the US as well I I visited some labs in Hawaii and Oregon and California I did my PhD in New Zealand at Victoria University of Wellington it's very windy and cold there so no beach activities there really but everywhere I've been it's had the people has been what made it I wouldn't say there was anything drastically different. There's a few, you know, smaller idiosyncrasies that are different. But for example, they have in Australia dedicated technicians who help facilitate research. And I found that that when I was in New Zealand and the UK, although I didn't do that much work in the UK in research in the UK, it was more undergraduate and masters. But I definitely found in, in versus New Zealand there was a more kind of technical support, which in Australia is is just incredible. Like the I like hail them. They're wonderful and so knowledgeable. They're like compasses for us and the students. So yeah, they're really, um, that would be the, I think the biggest thing that I like about Sydney and an Australian Institute, but it doesn't have the, like, I love England for its, um, like old timey kind of university brick buildings and beautiful buildings. I don't get that. Now going back to the start of the episode and wrapping up what we said, I guess if people want to study coral reefs, Australia is a really, really good place to do so. So how far is actually a coral reef from uh, Sydney? I could walk 20 minutes down the road and I'm at a coral reef. (laughs) Well, okay, that's actually probably a little unfair to say there's not reefs necessarily in Sydney, but there are corals. But a lot of the work that I do because I'm in Sydney and the Great Barrier Reef doesn't extend as far south as this, although it's, you know, slowly getting more and more high latitude. But anyway, um, that's another conversation for another day. Um, but yeah, I so it would be like a maybe a short flight to, to get to a reef, mm-hmm. an actual reef. Um, but yeah, you do have corals just off the coast of Sydney. Some pretty amazing, beautiful corals as well. So yeah, don't have to go too far. Not as far as if I was in England. So that was really the last question I had for you. Um, to wrap up everything, I know you're active on Twitter, right? If people want to follow you up and your journey, uh, they can do that on Twitter. At Tiny Scientist, because I am a tiny scientist. I'm all of, you can't see on a podcast, I guess, but I'm five foot. <laughs> so five foot one on a good day, maybe. <laughs> Thank you very much for being here with us, Jennifer, and sharing all your knowledge on coral reefs. I definitely learned a lot and I hope that our audience did so too. No, wonderful. Good. Thank you so much for having me. And yeah, if anybody is interested in um, my research or, or wants to talk about corals more, I always love to talk about corals. So um, please reach out on Twitter. I'm not the best at, at tweeting all that often, but yeah, I will always answer if you message me. 